Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hear my words and bear witness to my vow. Night gathers and now my watch begins. It shall not end until my death. I shall take no wife. Hold no lands, father no children. I shall wear no crowns and win no glory. I shall live and die at my post. I am the sword in the darkness. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the shield that guards the realm of men. I pledge my life and honor to the night's watch. For this night, and all the nights to come. Hello and welcome to Still Watching Game of Thrones. I'm Vanity Fair Senior Writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. We are no longer re-watching Game of Thrones. We are now just watching Game of Thrones, Richard. It's season eight time. I know, brand new stuff. Uh, if you are just joining us now for the first time, we just got done watching, um, like the 15 most essential, important episodes of Game of Thrones. You can go back and listen to them. There's no, there's no expiration date on that project. You can go back and listen to all of that that we did, but we are continuing our discussion of Game of Thrones through this final season. We're back. We've got our awards that we like to give out, which is something that we do here. And then we've also got interviews on this week's episode, which we will be discussing season eight, episode one, Winterfell, written by Dave Hill, directed by David Nutter. Our very special guest will be John Bradley, Samuel Tarley himself. So stay tuned for that conversation later. But first, Richard and I are going to get into this. Um, Usually, I do a 15-word recap, but I feel like we all just watched this episode. Uh, so I, I'm just going to, like, give you a query instead. Richard, are you ready? Uh, oh, yeah, lay it on me. My 15-word <laughs> my or less query. Do those dragons want to fuck? <laughs> That's my question. <laughs> Speaking of laying it on. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, so we're going to get into those dragons. I wish I had used a different phrase, but, uh, but first we're going to do this thing we like to do where we, uh, drop our obvious MVP of the episode. I'm not just sucking up to our guest, John Bradley, when I say that my obvious MVP is Samuel Tarley, who delivered, I think, the most emotionally resonant stuff in this episode like despite all the reunions and all the things that were happening around it it was like samuel tarley coming in with a chin quiver that got me uh richard who's your obvious mvp i, I gotta say brand just sort of sitting there being all knowing and kind of freaking everyone else out uh, but like also people are sort of seem like intrigued by him because they're like what does you know what does he know turns out it's everything so um i i enjoyed watching him kind of drop those little bombs uh, throughout the episode yeah twitter was like the number 
two, I think, trending thing on Twitter last night after Game of Thrones was Bran. People are really, really into what he's doing this season. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then we want to name our sneaky MVP, and I'm going to give it to like my obvious favorite, Jamie Lannister, who shows up in the last second. I mean, this is like a probably a co-title with your MVP, Bran, but like the Bran Jamie last second. Hey, I'm back in Winterfell. Oh shit, dawning realization on his face. Nicola Costa Waldo was in this episode for, I would say, less than a minute, or maybe, maybe he got a whole minute. No dialogue, still walked away with the thing in, in many respects, in my opinion. What do you think, Richard? Well, before I say mine, I mean, you also, yeah, I mean, you have to give it up to like Jamie's like kind of shaggy look with the beard yeah, and everything, the darker the hair. The road like, look. Yeah. yeah. Um, a, a friend who was watching the show with me, she, uh, made an audible sort of gasping noise. <laughs> <laughs> Well, when he, when he took that hood off, I've got this, uh, piece up on VF right now, which is like something I like to do with the episode, which is these callbacks and Easter eggs and, um, Jamie taking off his, his hood and sort of shaking out his hair, um, I think is, is definitely a reference to his season one, episode one entrance where he takes off his like helm and mm-hmm. shakes out his like beautiful blonde, uh, the, the Prince Charming from Shrek hair that he had in season one. Uh, so it's a nice little, little contrast there, but yeah, the, the shaggy road beard was was a really good look. Uh, yeah. Richard, who's your sneaky MVP? I'm going to say Drogon the Dragon for giving John that little like mm-hmm, look look or whatever that look was <laughs> <laughs> that like also seemed to set Twitter aflame. Har har. Because um, it's just like wait, what's going on there? Um, so I yeah, I have to give it to to good old Drogon. Yeah, not to like just continually self-promote on this, but we do have an interview with sound designer Paula Fairfield on a previous Still Watching episode where she talked about the sort of inner monologues that she has created for Drogon the Dragon because she makes all the sounds for him. And uh one of them is, or her main thing with Drogon is that she thinks of him as the reincarnation of Khal Drogo, which I love. And so like whenever he's like territorial or shitty about Daenerys, she's like, that's why that's, that's her husband. And I was like, all right, I love it. Um, so if you want to hear Paula talk about all of her things that she's come up with, it's pretty amazing. All right. Here is where this is our most popular segment, right? Richard, this is the part where we perform a quote from oh, the yeah. episode that we've People just watched. Love it. People love it. They love our our really accurate accents. Mm-hmm. Um, Richard and I are both Rada trained performers, so we know what we're doing. Um, here is my line from the episode. Uh, goes like this: "That fucking family, and um, it belongs to Sir Bronn of the Blackwater." Uh, Richard, what is your quote from this episode? It's cold up here for a southern girl. <laughs> I really like that. <laughs> John being real saucy. And then she, what does she say? Well, that warm her up. Um, there is, it's one of those moments. I mean, I love Bron saying that. And, but, it, but it was, the episode is kind of like weirdly funny. Like, yeah. there, was, there were a lot of like one linery jokes. Um, and Bronze was probably one of the best. And then that John kind of trying to be sexy was, it's funny because he's such a humorless character. Yeah. I think, um, I think our our boss Mike Hogan called it campy when we were talking about it on the Little Gold Men podcast last week. He's like the episode was like oddly campy, uh, which I think is true. Um, yeah, that was that was a little um, uh, yeah, a little a little slick, I guess. So John, I don't know, he got the girl, so whatever. What can you say? Plus, he had just like, I mean, John needed to try to look smooth there because he looked like a complete asshole in the back of that dragon. <laughs> so oh you know, yeah, um, fair he, point. He needed some suave uh, points back. Um, all right. Best dress of the episode. I got to give it to my girl, Sansa Stark, who was like dressed to impress and intimidate in this episode as she like sneered at everyone, uh, just wearing her like beautiful militaristic finery. Um, who do you, who do you call best, best dress of the episode? Well, not to c- continue reinforcing the John Danny binary, but I think Danny is like winter white, coat dress thing uh was pretty stunning although it did make me wonder where all these clothes were coming from like who made them for, for her and for the army you know like where, where where did they come from um but that's okay uh if a costume can provoke such questions i, I think that's fine 
<laughs> yeah, I I was thinking that too. Um because that's that winter coat that she wears is very similar to one she wore last season except it's got like a slight difference in that like uh, the I don't know, I'm about to embarrass myself cuz I don't know anything about costuming, but like the ridges between the tufts of fur or whatever are red instead of I think last season they were gray or something like that. Gives her like a little bit more of a Targaryen red, like pop of mm-hmm. color. But I'm like, yeah, who is the seamstress on the road to Winterfell who's like, okay, Milady, so you want the same coat, but like a little redder this time? Great. No problems. I'm on it. Uh, I, you, I got you, you know? Um, yeah. Who is, who is, P.S. We know Sansa makes all of her own clothes. So she's like learned to work leather and, uh, is, is really working it in every sense of the word. Okay. Uh, the last thing we do before we get into our episode discussion is talk about like our ships, like two characters or a character and an inanimate object that we're shipping to piggyback off of what Richard said. I'm shipping the dragons and like anyone or anything that they want to have sex with because like, I don't know what I, I have my theories about what those looks meant in that scene where John was kissing Daenerys. But like, if you're going to ship someone in this episode, it should be either Rhaegal or Drogon. Or maybe Rhaegal and Drogon. I mean, they're brothers, but like Daenerys and John are aunt and nephew. So like, it's not like incest is exactly off the table and we're talking about dragons. So who even knows? Anyway, um, that's, that's my, um, that's my take. Richard, what's yours? This is a surprising one for me because I normally or just in general, haven't really wanted her to sort of be saddled with a love interest. But like that little scene between Arya and Gendry was sort of like, huh? Like yeah. I like their little dynamic. I don't know that it will ever because like, like it's weird. It's like her confer- like see- seeing this crush from her childhood, and now she's like, you know, grown and done and seen a lot more. Um, and I, ju- I just think it was an- I liked many of the moments of like reunion and all that in the- in this episode, but that was my favorite. Yeah, it was. Um- I really liked it too. And I, like, I hear what you say about not wanting her to be saddled with the love interest, but I'm also like really actively rooting for if they want it and if they're ready for it, the Stark girls to have like some positive sexual experience in their life. Like John has had two love interests, mm-hmm. you know, Brad is not even a human anymore, but like Arya and Sansa, like, you know, a big war is coming. Like one, one last night, ladies, like, come on. It's, you know, so, uh, for Sansa, whatever, I mean, like Sansa at her leisure, she, she has had some bad experiences. So like, I'm not like, well, she needs to get laid, but if she wants to, I'm just saying Podrick Payne is around. He's good at this. <laughs> he, he always is. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah. And then Gendry and Arya. I liked how kind of like, slightly stiff and uncomfortable it was you know what i mean like it Mm -hmm. wasn't just like ooh zippy chemistry like pouring out the screen it was just sort of like i don't know how to behave Uh, you know like i I feel like if i were in that position both on both sides on gendry's side too like i would definitely feel like i said the wrong oh that wasn't smooth oh i thought that was gonna sound smooth and it didn't damn it like or like who am i compared to who i was yeah i really liked that stuff it was very good Gendry and Arya, big into it. All right. Uh, yeah. And so then we just want to talk a little bit about this episode, how it fits into like the rewatch we just did and whether or not we think it, it was a successful launch to the final season. Um, I'll start and say that like something I was really worried about, something that I think didn't work very well last season was um, the Arya and Sansa stuff in terms of this like manufactured conflict between two women at Winterfell and what all that meant. And then I knew that they were going to sort of do that again with Daenerys and Sansa this season, that that was something that they said was going to be part of the season. And I was really bracing for it to be feel like once again, manufactured or overblown, but I feel like it, you know, was really anchored in who these people are, where they would be in all this. Like Sansa has no reason to trust Daenerys. Like Sansa hasn't watched Game of Thrones. So she doesn't know that like Daenerys is generally a pretty, like pretty cool, cool lady. Um, and then, you know, Daenerys is very imperious and not used to someone like Sansa. And so their energies as they sort of meet each other is, um, I don't know. It, it just like made sense to me. What did you think, Richard? Yeah, I mean, I think in general, like, I found the light tone surprising, you know, um, 
and there were moments where I was like, oh, this is kind of like Game of Thrones drag. Like it's, it is the thing, but it's sort of a heightened version, sort of self-conscious version. But then there were other moments like, like, like Samuel Tarly's scenes or the little thing with Arya or, you know, just other, you know, small moments where I was just like totally back in. And I think that that's what the episode needed to do. It's been a while since the last season. It's coming burdened with so much expectation. It needed to say hi to all our, you know, old friends and have them say hi to each other. And it, that's a, a tricky feat of like crowd management. Um, yeah. and I think, and I think the, ep- the episode achieves that. So, um, and I, and it, you know, it ended and I was like, all right, next one, please. Yeah. I mean, I think that this is, um, this was a big problem last season. They had even more of these like awkward reunion, like what have you been doing off screen since last we met sort of moments. Um, and there were a fair few of them, but like, it feels like almost everyone is back together and talked. I mean, there were a few people missing from this episode, like Melisandre is still gall- gallivanting off in Essos doing whatever. So she's going to come back and I don't know, see Arya again since for the first time since season three or what have you. Um, and Brienne was there, but not really like doing any of the reuniting herself. So like Brienne and Jamie, something we can look forward to or whatever, or whatever it is. But, uh, but I think that, you know, with everyone coalescing in Winterfell, having this table setting happen here and then probably a little bit more next episode. And then it's just like fight, fight, fight till the end kind of thing. Um, I can forgive some of that awkward reunion stuff. It's really, it's just like a heavy lift that they have to do. Like, because it's not just like, Hey, I haven't, because that was game of Thrones, right? Like let's just throw our characters all over the map and, and have them not interact for years. And then to have to have them interact. And then like the stuff that they've been through is so crazy. One thing I really loved is um when Arya and John had their reunion, Something that's really frustrated me, it's driven me crazy, is that no one ever talks about the fact that Jon Snow dies, like, ever. Uh, last season, Davos, like, started to say something when they were meeting Daenerys, and Jon's like, no, no, it would be gauche to talk about that time I died, mm-hmm. basically. Um, but he tells Arya right away, and I really, you know, she's like, how'd you survive a night through the heart? And he says, I didn't. And that, to me, I was just like, yes, like, okay, yeah, we're talking about it. Not at length. We don't have time to talk about anything at length on the show anymore pretty much but like Arya now knows that John dies and that's that that's a degree of intimacy he hasn't afforded even like his girlfriend slash aunt so um so yeah but yeah I mean like I watched the memification of Game of Thrones this season you know every season more and more but this season is the most in terms of like I mean, I, I don't mean to be like a wet blanket. Like, I think it's great that Twitter has a lot of fun with Game of Thrones memes. Like, they're really fun. They're all funny. But I was just sort of like, I, I do worry sometimes about the show, like playing to the crowd in that respect. Um, does that make sense? Oh, totally. Uh, yeah. I mean, I know, think that so. many shows fall prey to that, you know, um, where you start just kind of really turning toward the fans and giving them exactly what they want because, understandably it's very human impulse you don't want to let them down you know you don't want them yeah. to turn against you and so you're like you like this right 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 um you know and i think that we have a, a strange example of that in, in this episode in in the, the sort of awkward flight of the dragons where danny risks the kind of co-leader of this whole movement uh against you know the forces of evil so they could so she can go on like a little joyride with her boyfriend it's like that doesn't make that much sense um and john looks so goofy doing it you know but they're like well you know pe- they like it when people ride the dragons so here's someone riding the dragons um it's i found that like you know it's forgivable it's a little silly but like um there were again there was enough else that was sort of a little bit more a little richer in its emotional content and a little bit um more uh complicated i guess in its mythology that i could forgive the 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 writers um or the writer kind of being like uh we need to do something that like you know will make people cheer halfway through this episode so we don't lose them yeah and i mean i think you know if i had guess and i really i don't know this for certain because there's a lot that i don't know of this season and there's no spoilers on this podcast by the way like we won't talk about spoilers if i do know something i will avoid talking about it um but I don't know. I imagine that there's going to be a dragon battle between if you've got an undead evil dragon and some live, like non evil dragons, like they're, you're going to make them fight. Why wouldn't you? Right. Um, and so I, I, and I would guess also that John would be a part of that. Right. Um, you mm-hmm. want like two dragon riders, um, on, on team good guy. Um, 
And so I think they had to get him on that dragon right away so that by the time the battle starts, either in episode three or later, like it's not so crazy that John hops on a dragon, you know? Um, that being said, it just did, it felt, it did feel a little rushed in terms of like book readers have been thinking for years about the fact that like, the dragon had three heads and who's the third dragon rider and what's happening. And Oh, if John's a Targaryen, he can ride a dragon. It's like this big thing. And like Daenerys is just like, hop on. Nobody knows that they can ride a dragon until they ride. And you're like, ah, okay. All right. Well, okay. We're done. Here we are now. Mm-hmm. This is the show we're watching now. And then like, I, yeah, I don't dislike it. Um, but that's only because I've just like relaxed into the fact that it's just a very, it's a very different show. And I expect that sort of goofy tone won't sustain through the battle episodes that they keep promising and all yeah. the death that they keep promising and all of that. So, yeah. You know. It's like, you know, when like high school seniors, there's a great onion article about this, uh, like high school seniors, all of a sudden like get very wise, you know, and they're like, what a long strange trip it's been. But you know, like that's kind of what this show's doing a little bit. It's a, it's a little bit like, uh, I don't know, sort of uh, self mythologizing and sort of aggrandizing itself, but in a way that I'm like, okay, like they, they've earned it, you know, all these kind of like, you know, big character moments and you know this sort of gesturing towards its own legacy um i think that's okay because like the show has been really well made and really well entertaining for years now and so um if they're gonna be a little bit like because it's the end for them too you know yeah Um, absolutely you know they're only human it's a victory lap Mm -hmm. you know and that and that is really an understandable thing to do and but i i do like what i've heard from every single person that i've talked to on this podcast is that they like poured every fiber of their being into this final season and i believe that too you know it's not like it's not like it's a victory lap without like blood sweat and tears in it right um and so you know the fact that i believe that uh, you know i think it, it i think it can be both so Anyway, I, I agree. the The tone of this episode is a little a little flip, but we'll see we'll see what happens from there. Uh, is there anything else? Oh, like, what do you think of what's going on with like Tyrion and Cersei and all of that in this episode? I mean, I feel a little bad for Cersei because, or for Lena, uh, Lena Headey because, like, all her other pals are all up hanging out together, and she's alone, stuck with this. I believe I've made my uh, feelings your, about your own feelings. Yeah. <laughs> She's stuck down there waiting for elephants that are never going to come. Um, unless that's like a Chekhov's elephant thing, where like you mentioned them in the first episode, you got to have them by the fourth or whatever. Um, that would be very satisfying. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, Lena Headey is such a great actress, and I'm, I, I have no doubt that like um, they'll she'll get her moment to be folded into the broad, you know, the, the narrative of everyone else. Um, I also love that it, you know, more Kyburn is a good is good for me. <laughs> Even with those, um, yeah, I do feel bad. Like all that's left at King's Landing is the zombie bodyguard, the mad scientist, the mercenary, and me. La da da dee. Um, <laughs> no, um, like even with, um, just Euron as her scene partner, right? Like Lena Headey finds these moments, like, uh, you know, he says he's gonna, like, there's this whole question mark for me in terms of what's happening with, with Cersei's pregnancy. Uh, according to the scripts I read last season, she's, she definitely was pregnant last season. So she's drinking wine and looking like sad now. So I don't know if she like miscarried or maybe like drank some moon tea in the off season or something like that. Like, I don't know what's happening and why they would make that so oblique here. Um, rather than sort of tell us what's happening. Um, but. Anyway, she has this moment where he says he's going to put a prince in her belly and he walks out of the room and then Lena Headey, just like summoning all the forces of her acting genius, gives you this extremely vulnerable Cersei look that like 900 emotions play across her face. And um, I just don't understand people who are like, you know, Cersei is an evil, like evil bitch and I can't wait for her to die. I was like, do you not see the like the levels of what's happening mm-hmm. with this performance and like, how can you just like, how can you just root for her to like have a downfall when there's like, s- I feel like it should be more complicated than that. You know what I mean? Totally. Totally. Anyway. Um, yeah. And then, and then Tyrion, what do you think? Yeah. I liked the moment. I like, I mean, I liked Sansa just being like, you, th- you know, and I, I, you know, I used to think you were the smartest man in the whole world and now clearly you're not, you know, like I think that 
that's a, a pretty admirable um, example of the show. I don't know, tearing down its own legacies in some ways, or or, or sort of reinterpreting its heroes. Um, you know, because yeah, there there wouldn't be one kind of all seeing, all knowing. Well, other than Brand now, you know, but there wouldn't be like one like like best best player in the game kind of thing. Like they would all make mistakes and sort of let a character like Tyrion, who is you know a fan favorite and it's the only actor to win Emmys for it, and like you know I think one of the few that's going to survive. Like to to have another major beloved character be like you're kind of an idiot. Uh, right there in the last at the beginning of the last season, I think is um is like a nice bit of uh you know adding some more fullness to the caricature the to, to the narrative yeah it's interesting um it's interesting to me that they're playing it this way in terms of like we the audience know that cersei has lied to Tyrion, and we the audience like so we know that sansa's right and Tyrion's wrong which is sort of like i i appreciate that but it's kind of not what um the show has been doing, I feel like in the past, the show would have like kept us in suspense a bit mm-hmm. about what Cersei's been doing, but it's this like sort of suspense versus surprise or what have you. Like we know that Tyrion's making a huge mistake. We know that a disaster is coming for him in the fact that he's sitting here and vouching for Cersei and Cersei is actively plotting to betray them. And so we're just sort of watching him in a slow stumble. Do you know? It's, mm-hmm. it, I think, which, which I think is kind of, uh, not kind of. I think it's narratively rich and interesting. So um, there we go. All right. Is there anything else you want to hit on uh, in this week's uh, discussion? I just have a question for you because you know these things more than I do. What was the spiral made of legs and arms? What was the sp- what did the spiral signif- signify? <laughs> um. So the the White Walkers. We've seen that sort of spiral shape from them a bunch of times. They like to arrange their body parts that they lop off people in fun like decorative mandalas i mean same but like yeah yeah (laughs) who doesn't the spiral we've seen a lot and actually the my interpretation of the spiral in the episode uh in season six where we saw the children of the forest like make the night king by like shoving that dragon glass into his chest and stuff like that um, when you had an overhead shot of the tree where they were, you know, doing it, there's a spiral pattern there of the tree and the rocks around it and stuff like that. So it's sort of like, that's, I have, I have this whole crazy theory about the fact that like the Night King isn't evil. He just, I mean, he's evil, but like he just wants to die. Like he wants to be done. Like that's what I think the Night King is up to. Um, and this is his like original wound. Like, he was a, he was a man that the children of the forest turned into this monster. And so, like, this wound that happened to him, uh, all goes back to that shot of the tree and the spiral and the ground and stuff like that. And so he's just, like, sort of re, like, manifesting his wound through all these other ways in which he's wounding humanity back. Um, oh. that might be a little too. <laughs> In my own head, but that's sort of always been my, or recently been my interpretation. Um, I loved that, uh, undead baby Ned Umber stuff. The shriek is kind of new for the undead. Um, and actually I texted Paula last night, Paula Fairfield, the sound designer about that. I was like, did you do that shriek? She's like, yeah, and it's actually, it's a friend of ours, uh, who was shrieking. Mm. So, um, you know, become friends with sound designers and your shriek might make its way into Game of Thrones. You never know. But, um, yeah, it was just funny for this like horrifically unsettling image to be kind of in there when the uh, the rest of the episode was actually kind of, you know, airier and a little bit cheerier. And then all of a sudden there's like, no, 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 we're still very brutal. Like here, here's this. Yeah. Well, it's funny because, uh, someone messaged me last night and they were like, if this show becomes a zombie movie, I swear to God, I was like, kind of too late. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, it's been, it's been one. It's, there i know it's already one so you know um but yeah the uh, some people have also noted that when when the when the spiral was lit on fire when all those like body parts light on fire uh it kind of looks like the targaryen symbol with the mm. three head of the dragon and like stuff um mm-hmm. which i kind of see i see it um i don't know what use that would be uh in in the grand scheme of things but maybe maybe that's uh what we're looking at there another possibility Anything else that we saw uh, on the episode? No, I think that's that. That's it for me. All right. Well, then that means we did it. Um, just a reminder, I still got some people crabby with me today 
on Twitter about the paywall at vf.com. If you go to vanityfair.com slash thrones, enter promo code thrones. I, I know that that offer is still available, like as of right now. You get a year for $7.50 plus a tote. And I think someone on Twitter put it this way. It's a year of content in a tote. And I was like, yeah, it is. It really is. Mm-hmm. It's a good deal. So, uh, you know, do it, uh, or don't, but those are your options. Um, and yeah, let's go have a chat with John Bradley. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the reviews director of Pitchfork. And this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Hey, Joanna. Hello. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thank you so much for chatting with me. I really appreciate it. No, my pleasure. Not at all. Um, so when, when I'm watching this episode uh, last night and there's so much emotion going on, but I was totally fine. And then your your chin starts to quiver and then I lose Aww. it. Yeah. So um, what is it like to have that kind of effect on people when, when you cry, they cry sort of thing? Well, it feels like an enormous responsibility to have. I mean, I, mean, I, I think one of the reasons why why that scene worked, I, I think I think in terms of the scene itself as a self-contained thing, but also in terms of its place within the episode is, I think that up until that point, there had been quite a lot of stuff in that episode that is, that is about, you know, getting everybody reacquainted with the landscape. And as, as episode ones want to do, you know, they get people used to the landscape, they re-establish where the characters are geographically and psychologically and re-establish all those relationships. And when I started to read that, when I first read that episode one script, I thought, oh, this is what this is, what this is going to be like. And I suspected that Sam was going to find out about Randall and Dick on at some point. I suspected that he was going to tell Jon Snow about his true parentage at some point, but I don't think anybody really expected it to be at the end of that first episode. And and even in that even in that scene, I think that scene starts with with your kind of your usual and your expected classic Samuel Tarly, you know, vaguely comic, bumbling, awkwardness, and that that, that persona that's kind of defined him over the last however many seasons. It's been pretty much since the start. There, there, there's been this there's been this this awkward and poorly placed humour about him that, that, you know, sometimes he's in control of and sometimes he isn't. But that's what you're expecting to see. You're expecting an awkward exchange between Danny and Sam, where Sam's going to come, come across as awkward and bumbling, and Daenerys is going to probably have a great affection for him after that. But that sudden turn, that sudden change of atmosphere in that episode when she says, Randall Tarly, and he says, you know him, that's a change that I don't think people are expecting. And I, I remember being in New York and when watching that scene on the big screen at Radio City Music Hall, and when she says Randall Tarly, there was a real perceptible change of atmosphere in that room. And somebody behind me, I heard somebody behind me say, oh, shit. <laughs> I, because, because they weren't expecting that to happen. And it happens at a weird place that you're just not expecting. And it's a complete sucker punch and it completely cold cops people. And I, and I think I think because Sam, that emotion completely cold cocks Sam. He's not expecting it. He's completely taken by surprise by how much pain he feels at that moment. The audience feels that as well because they weren't expecting to see something so challenging. They weren't expecting that this key moment, this moment is clearly going to be very painful. They're not expecting it to happen at this point because it's not, it doesn't really fit in with the tone of the episode so far. It comes as a big surprise because of that, and it's more effective because of that. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to be charitable and say it's a team effort. 
Team effort. <laughs> it's, it's, down to, it's down to David Nutter. It's down to Dave Hill, and it goes down to me. <laughs> a lot of a lot of Daves but, involved but, in the making of this moment. Yeah, uh, true. Two Daves and a John. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I, I wanted to ask you, of course, because there is this slight logic gap where I've seen a lot of people say, well, obviously, you know, Randall and Dickon weren't always very nice to Sam. So why is he so upset for, for me personally, I think we can be upset when we have sort of unresolved issues with someone, even if we didn't get along with them, you know, then they're gone and you never get to have that closure with them. What, what did you tap into for your reaction there? One of the things that I had in my mind, when I was preparing for that scene, was this article I read a long time ago about if you if if you if you have a, a relationship with one of your parents that is strained and difficult, and a relationship with one of your parents and it's good and it's happy and it's positive and it's warm, you're going to grieve the one that you have a difficult relationship with harder. Believe it or not. Right. It, it, it sounds, sounds counterintuitive because there is something about it as unresolved and it's never going to get any better and, and the pain's never going to get any easier and you're not actually going to have any happy memories to cling on to for support when they've gone. And I think that in terms of finding out that, about Randall specifically, when I was preparing for that scene and they were just about to turn the cameras over and I was ready for my take, the take that's in the show, we kept that as one take. I'm very happy about that. Uh, David Nutter, the director, came over and just said, uh, this means you're never going to make it better. You're never going to make it better. Oof. He's gone. And, and just have that in your mind when you find out about Randall. So I did. And, and then I found out and that was in the back of my mind all the time when I was filmed. just that Randall segment. That's kind of what I was thinking about. And, and it was... I think it's hard, it's hard for Sam to take that because he is conflicted about it. And he can process that information slightly more readily than he would the information about Dickon. And he even gives himself that silver lining of, at least I can go home now. He's almost he's convincing himself that he's fine. Right. He's convincing himself that he's fine, I can deal with it. Because, you know, he could be forgiven for thinking that he's over. His childhood now. He's achieved so much. So a lot of those scars have healed, and he not doesn't feel defined by that anymore. But then when he hears about Dickon, that's a completely different emotional reaction. Because I think he sees Dickon as well. I, I, I see Dickon, and I see characters like that in real life. They're just another victim of to- toxic masculinity as well. They've they've just decided to be a victim of it in a different way. Sam resisted it. And Sam was an embarrassment to Randall because he didn't subscribe to that worldview. And maybe Dickon was just trying a bit too hard and sought his father's approval too much. He's not a bad guy. He just wanted, he was probably scared of Randall as well and wanted to keep him happy by being like him and probably saw the way that Randall treated Sam and thought, well, I don't want to be like that, so I'd better, I'd better heighten this sense of masculinity in myself so he doesn't think I'm an embarrassment like that. I think there's probably a lot of that going on. And because of that, Sam's got the compassion to see that. And when he grieves Dickon, I I, I didn't want to just burst into tears because that's what it said on the page, Sam gets upset and cries, but I wanted it to feel more like a, yeah, more like a kind of mental breakdown where he just does not know how to process this information. He's in a complete state of shock. He's got so many emotional responses flashing through his brain. The anger, the despair, grief. Uh, and on top of all that, just as if that wasn't hard enough, he's in front of the Queen, so he still has to have a certain dignity about him. He can't break down. He can't cry in front of the queen. He's got to make his excuses and get out of there before he can cry. And he's thinking, I, want, I just wanted to play all of these tiny little things just across the face and hope, like I said, that they leave it as one shot because that, I just wanted it to be one excruciating shot that probably goes on a little bit too long. And you can just see all of these things flashing through his, through his brain because the pain of it has completely taken him by surprise. And he can't process it in any, in any satisfactory way. So he, he, his, his brain is just 
all these thoughts are spinning through his brain. He's trying to find a way of processing it, but he can't. That's what I was kind of going for in that bit. And that transition between random and Dickon, so that was a quite a tricky one to navigate. And so you kind of short space of time, really, but there has to be a difference between them because his attitude to them was was, was more kind of wildly different than you, you'd imagine, really, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think, um, something we're seeing in Game of Thrones as it's in the end game is this acceleration of plot, this like, this fact that we have to get through so much and so move so many players around the board. So the fact that there was time to just sit with Sam's grief, I think felt so, so right and so earned for Sam to have that moment and, and yeah. such, uh, you know, a, a tapping of the brakes in the episode. Yeah, but I I, I think that, that it all kind of came together so nicely because I think it was it really worked as well with the way Amelia playing uh, Daenerys in that episode because she is playing Daenerys so seemingly kind of detached and cold and and and, and ruthless and and she tells Sam that his family have been burnt alive. For, for, for a, a minor act of, of defiance, she tells them that they've been burnt alive. She doesn't offer any comfort, really. She doesn't offer any arm around the shoulder and saying, I, you know, I, I'm sorry, I wish I, 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 you could have gone a different way. She just said, uh, they refused, and so I killed them. And, and because, of, because she doesn't offer him any comfort, because she doesn't say anything, she just watches him grieve and doesn't, isn't moved by it, seemingly. Doesn't approach him. Doesn't interrupt the grief and say, you can go now. He has to ask to be excused. And because of her coldness and detachment from him, he's left like a rabbit in the headlights to grieve all on his own. And on one, in, on one head and shoulders shot that's not cut, doesn't cut to her, doesn't cut to a different size. And it goes on for longer than you think it's going to go on for. I think it's probably about 10 seconds, but with all that emotion going on, it feels quite uncomfortable to watch after a while, I think. And, and that fed into the way Amelia was playing it. And sometimes these things, even with people you've never worked with before, these different approaches to your characters, it all come together and they just all click and they all they, they heighten each other's performances. And Yeah, and, and this is one of those occasions, really. Are you surprised? I mean, I, I guess I can't be that surprised that that's Daenerys' approach. Should we be surprised that Jorah doesn't offer Sam any comfort in that moment either? It'd be interesting to know what kind of Jorah's view on Daenerys is now. Back in season two, he tells Daenerys that um, she's got a good heart, and that's why she'd be a good leader. And you're not really seeing that anymore. I think all her experiences and kind of everything that she's gone through and everything that she's withstood and the person that she is now, she doesn't seem to have that heart anymore. She seems much more, she seems, in that thing, especially, she seems kind of psychopathic almost. And she does, she, she's developed all, you know, regressed, some might say, in terms of morality so much from that moment. But I don't know what he thinks about her anymore. I don't know if he still believes that she has a good heart, but she's just doing what she can to assert her authority, or if she believes that she's changed. He, 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 royalties are always going to lie with her, so he's not going to take Sam's side over Daenerys, no matter what. Sam's done for him in the past. He, he just has to kind of go along with her right hand man with whatever she feels is right. But yeah, that's 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 a, a struggle that you do sense. And there's a moment in that in that reaction where where Sam's eyes do actually flick up. I don't know if it's, it's noticed, but Sam's eyes do flick up to Jorah just to get a confirmation that it, that she's telling the truth yeah. and the, and the, and that she and she means it because Sam knows Jorah and trusts him and they forge the bond back at the Citadel. So he looks at Jorah hoping that he's going to get some comfort or maybe hoping that he's going to tell him that it's not true. But he gets nothing back from Jorah either. And that really heightens that feeling of isolation at that moment. And then, you know, I think it another isolating situation for Sam must be the fact that, you know, until he, he, until he encounters John down in the crypts, like the person he's spending the most time with is, is Bran, who is a 
not someone who's going to give him anything emotionally back ever. Right. And is, I'm, I imagine a challenging companion, both like on the page and off. Is it, what is it like having, I mean, Isaac's doing an amazing job, but what is it like having Isaac as a scene partner to be, to have Sam's sort of function in the plot joined to what is going on with Bran right now? I hope in a way that he doesn't feel that he's being, you know, slightly short James and stuff because, he, because you know, the, the, on the surface of it, you know, he doesn't have to do much really, but, but, but that's a skill in itself to have that, that stillness and that eeriness. That's a real skill. And I think he's really nailing it. But there's an eeriness about him when he's in character on the set because it feels like you're talking to him like from the other side of a brick wall. You just feel that there's no, there's no connection at all. It feels like there's a real separation. You're right, that's very isolating as well. But it, it works so perfectly. And, and, and Sam's energy has always been surprising. If you, if you think about him, he's, he's quite active in terms of his energy. Like his eyes are always moving and he's always twitching and he's always, his body language is really weird. Like he'll fiddle about with his, Clothes all the time, and he's never really still because he's so awkward and so nervous and so kind of maladjusted. And then to, to have that energy against this complete stillness and and distance and separation, it, it, it creates a really weird. I mean, you saw that a lot in. It creates a really weird energy between the two. But you saw that in this scene at the end of season seven, where I come back and go to his chambers and we're talking. It makes sound energy seem even more heightened and creates a, a, an awkwardness between them. I think I think it's dramatically quite compelling because it makes Sam overcompensate and Sam probably becomes even more active and nervous when he's around this person who is barely speaking and not looking at him and just seems in another world altogether. And yeah. that's kind of how Isaac makes the set feel. He, he feels like there's a ghost at the table, almost. It feels like there's something not right that you're connecting with something that you shouldn't be and there's a kind of darkness around him and you testament to his performance but yeah it can be it can create some interesting little moments of chemistry between the two of us really something i love about sam is how often you know george r, r. martin or um some other people i was talking to brian cogman about this uh pick Sam as their proxy. Like they're the writers. So Sam is their proxy in the show. What is it, what does it mean to you to have a character like Sam be so valued and so important in this final season when everything feels like it's headed towards a war movie and Sam is our like cerebral, um, scholar? Like what does it mean to have a rep, that personality represented in this great conflict that's coming? It's a great honour because I think that what that means is that I mean I mean Brian and George and they're they're kind of contemporary people who live in a contemporary world and you know they don't live in a fantasy world they live in L.A. or they live in you know New Mexico wherever they live they live in the real world so I think that what what it is by proxy is an insertion of the person in the street into the show. And I think that's so important, especially as you, as you say in a kind of war situation, because Sam's not equipped for that environment, and he's not able to. On the surface of it, he's not able to physically cope. You think he'd be the first one with a sword to him because he's not Jon Snow, and he's not, you know, Jamie Lannister. He's not Jorah Mormont. He's not Grey Worm, and he's none of those people who have, who have that set of skills that you need to survive. And so, because of that, all the threats are heightened. Because Sam is the insertion of the person who can't cope, and everybody, and he, he's the person that they all have to protect, and that makes the threat of White Walkers, that makes the threat of Wildling, you know, earlier on in the series, that puts them into context really. Because if everybody was Jon Snow, and if everybody occupied a fantasy, you know, territory, then the threats wouldn't be as there wouldn't be so much jeopardy because everybody would be on a heightened level. Because Sam grounds the thing in some kind of humanity, it means that everything else is put into context as a reflection to that. And I think that's, that's, that's the writing, and I think I've tried to put that across with my performance as well. It's not 
try not to make it a, a fantasy performance if you can. There's lots of wonderful, demonstrative, you know, colourful performances in our show, but I've always tried to make Sam feel like he could be in anything. Like Sam could be in a, that characterization could almost be in a soap. Because, yeah. because I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to think, it's, or it could be in The Office or something. I think Martin Freeman, actually, is a huge inspiration for me playing Sam. Because even in The Hobbit and stuff like that, he, he manages to make his characters naturalistic and human. And because they're naturalistic and human, you care about them. And you see them in this landscape and see what a paradox that is and what a contradiction it is and how... It doesn't feel right that somebody, that, to all intents and purposes, a person off the street is suddenly in this fantasy landscape. And I like that disposition. I think it's jarring in all the right ways. And I think to be an insertion of, you know, the, the man in the street into this fantasy landscape, I think that's a great touchstone for people. And I think it's a real honor and a, and a nice responsibility to have. I love that. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for speaking to me. All right, this is usually the time on the podcast where we talk about what we're... <laughs> we, we announce what episode we're talking about next week, but obviously next week we're talking about Season 8, Episode 2. We don't have a title for it yet because HBO is only releasing the titles after the episode has aired on the East Coast. So that's a new degree of security question mark that mm-hmm. they've instituted. Um, but we will be back to talk about Episode 2 next week. Richard, until then, where can people find you? I just, I, I, you know, I'm, I have to go to some like body part arranging classes, I think, because I've tried to do it at home and it just never looks that good and putting it up on a wall. So that's, I think I'm just going to be kind of like, you know, boning up, so to speak. Uh, and I'll also be on Twitter at Rylaws and on BF.com. Joanna, where will you be? Uh, you'll find me on BF.com. You'll find me on Twitter at Joe Rothis. You'll also find me trying to teach dragons how to talk because I'm very, very interested in what they have to say. This episode was edited and produced by Dave Gonzalez. We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then, I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now 